When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. From the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast, I'm Robert Boynt. In this episode of The Vault, we'll hear excerpts from the Institute's 1980 conference on censorship and writing. In this opening session, NYU sociologist Richard Sennett describes the motivation behind the conference. The conversation is moderated by New York Review of Books editor Robert Silvers. The first presentation was given by R.A. Nyer, then the executive director of Human Rights Watch. The poet Joseph Brodsky and the writer Susan Sontag join the conversation. I'd like to welcome you to this conference in writing and censorship, which Joseph Brodsky and Arya Nair and I dreamed up. The reason we decided that we'd like to get a group, a small group of writers together, was that most of the discussions about censorship, uh, which now go on, focus on sort of uh, the, the the politics of who gets put in jail and when they get put in jail. And those are, that's very important uh, subject, obviously. But we thought that what was missing in that was consideration of what censorship does to the act of writing and where writers stand in the question about censorship in terms of the practice of their own work. And we thought it might be a good idea to get a group of writers together for a couple of days to try and think that issue out. It's an issue about which Oddly enough, not, not much is, is uh, known. And we started with the premise, which I suppose will be something that we'll have to explore as the course of these meetings uh, go on, which is that between a writer and the censor, there is not, and between writing and censorship itself, that these are not diametrically opposed activities, that there are questions about the complicity of, between writers and censors, there are questions about way in which the writer serves as his own censor that create a kind of gray area in terms of the act of writing that is not generally pursued. And it's to look at that gray area, that is to say the way in which the writer is not simply in that old romantic image, someone who is rebelling against the state, but is more involved in more complicated ways with the activity of, of repression himself in the process of trying to express himself that really constitutes the focus of this thing. Now, as I say, that's something that we don't know very much about. And I would assume, therefore, that this conference is going to be something that is quite open-ended. Basically, the, the, the plan of these meetings would be to have one or two people start just to put some ideas on the table for each one of these sessions and then open this up to the general discussion. The general discussion is what we'll learn from each other. This is the presentation of papers or anything of that sort. Tonight, Aria wants to open up the discussion 
by talking about the act of censoring itself, and it's a discussion that will be led by Bob Silvers. Uh, tomorrow, Arthur Miller and I, assuming Arthur Miller makes it from the frozen steppes of Western Connecticut, want to talk about cultural censorship. We want to talk about cultural censorship as he, as he attempted to explore it in China, and I want to talk about a theory of cultural censorship. And after lunch, Joseph Brodsky wants to talk about kind of ambiguities in the act of creating, which, which are involved in the question of censorship. So we can Well, I'm really just going to uh, turn this over very quickly to Aria. But I did think that perhaps we should say that this subject tonight is perhaps a little more limited in its scope than the large question of censorship that uh, Dick was just referring to. He was referring to the whole question, I take it, of how writers may feel when they, in some way, are under someone's authority or surveillance, or in some way impeded or in some way guided uh, by the wishes of others. In that sense, as someone said to me the other day, I have no business here because I'm a censor. Uh, editors are censors, publishers are censors, and network executives, they're all, the world is full of them. People have some power over others. But I was, I think tonight anyway, we're starting off from the idea, first a positive idea, that liberty as, uh, is what Orwell thought of when he said, liberty is telling people what they do not want to hear. Starting from that point, you might say that censorship takes place when you can, if you want, use the police to prevent something from being heard, or to punish people who have made themselves heard. That is to say, you can call upon the police. The censor is someone with official governmental authority. To say that is to not talk about all the kinds of censorship, or what it is, what whatever word you may want, which don't use it, or can't call upon the police, or have no thought of being able to use it. So that, at least, is my understanding of one point of departure for this question. There are many others. And with that, I'm going to ask Harriet to embark upon his subject, which is why do the censors who have such power sense them? Thank you. Um, I will be uh, quite brief. I think there are um, uh, some parts of the answer to the, the question why the censor is censor that, that are obvious and that uh, don't bear um, lingering on. Uh, I think it's plain why the, the censors try to prevent the publication of anything which would challenge their wisdom or their integrity or, or their competence or their authority. Clearly, they want to perpetuate themselves uh, in power and any, anybody who, um, who challenges what they do directly uh, is a threat. And uh, having the power, um, operating in uh, a system where uh, they have defined that it's legitimate to use such power, they suppress those things which they uh, regard as, as direct threats. They have to convey the um, the impression that authority does not err, misery may not be portrayed because misery suggests that there are things wrong in the society and therefore 
those who are in authority have failed. Uh, that's a direct challenge, and therefore it's press. They even have to engage in the revision of history because they have to make it plain that uh, they hold their authority legitimately, and if they're not able to control the past, if they can't control the history, then there may be some uh, challenge to, the, um, to their legitimacy. I think the more interesting question, interesting in the sense that the answer doesn't seem to me quite so plain, is why do the censors censor those things which, at least on, on their surface, are apolitical? Why is the censor unhappy about abstract painting? Why is the, the censor antagonistic to literature that seems to break new ground? even if it has nothing whatsoever to say about the politics of the society or the exercise of authority by those who are in power. I think we can uh, remember that the famous incident of Khrushchev viewing the the exhibit of abstract painting and, and Moscow and his outburst against what he saw. That seems to be characteristic of uh, those who hold power in totalitarian societies, that they are as firmly or almost as firmly antagonistic to unconventional works of literature or works of art as they are to those things which directly threaten them politically. Bob mentioned uh, Orwell, and I would also take a sentence from Orwell. Orwell wrote some 35 years ago that that there is no such thing as genuinely non-political literature. Orwell's reason or Orwell's support for that, I don't think, however, is the one which uh, really helps us. Uh, Orwell suggested, uh, and I think this is right as far as it goes, but it doesn't carry us that far, that anybody who was engaged in production of a work of art or a work of, of literature was always in danger of violating one of the taboos of the society. And in that sense, there was nothing that was non-political in the creation of a, a work of art or of literature because the, the sense that one would violate one of those taboos imposed self-censorship on the author, and that made any work of literature a political work of literature. I would add to that or supplement that by suggesting that if we think of works of art or, or works of literature as ways of offering a, a new perception, breaking away from convention in order to, um, to look at things afresh, perhaps we can understand why the apparently apolitical is as frightening to the censors as those things which are directly political. Because in the process of breaking away from convention in literature or art, a writer or an artist limits the audience Not everybody is going to to follow the person who breaks new ground. And there's going to be a special relationship that is established between the the writer or the artist and the audience. And it's that special relationship, that community that is created by the original work of art that I think is the the frightening thing to the censor. To the censor, operating in in the context of a totalitarian society or, or seeking to impose the equivalent of a totalitarian system, it's important to deal with the society uh, as a whole, as a mass, and not to allow the society to, um, uh, to divide, to fragment. Once the society fragments, once private associations, communities are created, 
between authors or artists and their audiences, there is a danger to this mass society, a community of any sort within this mass society that the, um, the censor seeks to maintain or to impose has the possibility of extending itself into a political sphere and in that fashion of challenging the authority or challenging the power of the state. Perhaps the most characteristic manifestation of the totalitarian state is a surveillance system, a system of gathering data on all of the activities of the associations and communities that are outside of the, the reach of the, um, uh, the society surveillance system are threatening to those who act on behalf of a totalitarian society. And the, the process of creating an original work of art is that process of, of, of creating a private association. Uh, I think that's perhaps one of the reasons that sexual repression is part of the, um, the characteristic of a, a totalitarian society. Sexual uh, minorities are among the... Um, the private associations that operate outside of the, the vision or outside of the control of the, um, uh, the larger society. Of its nature, the use of sex in, in a prominent way in, in, in literature or, or art perhaps creates furtive relationships, secretive relationships, uh, but not the kinds of broadly public relationships which allow for the general surveillance of what is taking place in the society. There doesn't seem to be anywhere near the same kind of censorship of violence in most totalitarian states as there is of those things which deal with sex in, in some way. Perhaps violence is more characteristic or something that, that people enjoy more in the mass than sex, which tends to separate them into small groups. And forms of art which grow out of the conventions of the society, which everyone can understand, uh, which are accessible to all and therefore uh, serve the entire public, help to unify uh, the society. Therefore, those are perhaps favored in the, uh, the totalitarian state as opposed to those forms of art, those forms of literature, which tend to, uh, to divide or to separate the society. I, I think there's a converse of that, which is that while the... Um, the totalitarian state cannot allow anybody else to have secret relationships, private relationships, those things which are, are not within its vision. It's absolutely important for the uh, totalitarian state to maintain the secrecy of its own operation. To the extent that the totalitarian state is accessible, to the extent that its activities are known by everyone, it is more readily controlled and, and perhaps it's, it's more vulnerable. Its weak points can be observed and therefore the greatest passion of all is the passion for, for maintaining secrecy. When there is a possibility that someone will reveal a secret of the society or reveal uh, vulnerability, that's the place where the, uh, the greatest effort takes place to, uh, to exercise censorship. In the United States, we haven't had that many public battles over censorship, and yet the few major ones that we've had in, in the last decade or so all have involved an effort by someone to reveal a secret of the government and the effort by the government uh, to prevent the revelation of its secrets. We had the battle over the Pentagon Papers, and there was a, a government secret which uh, demonstrated uh, vulnerability 
uh, within the government, and so we, we have that. We had battles over the secrets of the, uh, the Central Intelligence Agency, several such battles, and most recently we had a battle over the secret of the, um, the hydrogen bomb. I, I think that it, it may be that in each of these instances, it's not so much the content of the secret, which was important to those who were trying to, um, to maintain secrecy, it's rather an attempt to maintain the idea that there are secrets. The content may not have mattered so much as the sense that if the secrets were, were revealed, it would demonstrate a government vulnerability. There was a special opportunity to study the interests of the censors in a book that Bob Bernstein published, Victor Marchetti's book on uh, the CIA and the cult of intelligence. It was a special opportunity because the Central Intelligence Agency had to specify exactly which passages of that book it wanted to delete, and it specified some 338 passages of that book which were to be deleted, and then after a, a struggle, eventually the book was published with about half of those passages restored, and half of them were still deleted. One can study what the interests of the Central Intelligence Agency were in in censorship by looking at those passages, which they first tried to have deleted, and then in the course of legal struggle, were forced to allow to put into that book. I selected a few of those passages because they seem to me to illustrate that interest or, or the nature of that interest in maintaining secrets and, and in maintaining this, this appearance of invulnerability and if you will, that the government is one piece, that there, there is a, there's a wholeness to, to the nature of the government. In the sections of that book that, that dealt with the Central Intelligence Agency manipulating the Chilean elections, uh, there's quite a lot of material which actually details what took place. But this is one passage the CIA wanted to delete. But the passage reads, the central conclusion of, of some CIA study had been that forces for change in the developing Latin nations were so powerful as to be beyond outside manipulation. Why, why would they want to delete a passage like that? Showing that within the CIA itself, they knew that there may be something wrong with a CIA policy. They were willing to allow into that book all kinds of information about the CIA policy, but not the suggestion that there was somehow dissent within the CIA or that there was some vulnerability to, to a different point of view within the CIA. The next paragraph deletes only these words. The 1968 estimate had an effect urged against the kind of intervention. Those words come out, and then they allow to go in the kind of intervention that the CIA engaged in in Chile. They don't want you to know that there was some fragmentation within the government. They need to preserve the notion that there is a wholeness within the government, just as on, on the other side of things, the society which engages in censorship needs to deal with the public as, as, at large as a whole and cannot deal, does not want to deal uh, with a, um, a society that may be fragmented by the relationships that are established between authors breaking new ground and special audiences that are willing to follow the author when the author breaks new ground. Another passage in that book detailed FBI wiretapping of foreign embassies went into quite a lot of detail about the wiretapping. They didn't want to censor that. They only wanted to censor the following words from that passage. In cooperation with the Chesapeake and Potomac Telephone Company, um, they let you know that they'd engaged in the wiretapping. 
but the, the, the fact that it required somebody else's cooperation to, to get into it uh, was, the, was the portion of it uh, that, that, that had to be censored. There's another passage in the book which goes into detail about the role of the CIA in the capture of Che Guevara in Bolivia and the, um, uh, the killing of Che Guevara once he was in captivity. Here are the words that the CIA wanted to censor from that. Guevara's last moments were recorded in a rare touching message to headquarters from the CIA operator. <laughs> Those words had to come out. The suggestion that there might have been this vulnerability that somebody perhaps thought that this was a rare touching moment uh, within the CIA. <laughs> that had to come out of that, that passage. <laughs> I think that, that looking at, at these passages, this effort to maintain the whole government over here operating as one unit and the whole people on the other side, all of whom can understand a work of literature, understand a work of art, because it comes out of the accepted conventions within the society, suggests to be something of the, the interest of the censor, that, that fragmentation within the society is intolerable. And that when there is a possibility that the government will appear to be divided or that the people will be divided into small groups by the, um, the relationship of, of writers uh, and artists to their audiences, uh, that this is intolerable to the censors and that this is what prompts them uh, to act. And with that, I, I've made my opening statement and I hope that others will challenge me. Well, there we have, a very, I think, a very... Uh a very suggestive and strong statement, which, which I is suggesting that censorship goes way beyond any immediate and direct interest of the state in, uh, I think, in suppressing immediate threats to it, or even uh, criticism, but rather has, has a larger functional aim of um, preventing the formation and uh, an active energy on the part of, uh, of groups that might in some way have contrary and uh, unique aims unique to themselves. In your totalitarian state, while here you would emphasize less the, uh, the need to divide the society, I would think, and the need to, to prevent division, and more the need of the government to maintain its facade and air of authoritative um, it seems to me that is a very strong thesis to be argued, and I wonder who would like to intervene. Aria, you um, obviously deliberately did not refer to domestic censorship in the context of wanting to quarantine a society from foreign infection. And do you mean it? Of course there are, there are those who want to do that. I, I pick these examples of censorship simply because they have been the ones in which the government has had a leg to stand on in the United States, and therefore uh, it has fought those battles. I'm sure that if they prevailed, or if they could prevail in all those battles, they'd go further. Once the censor tastes blood, you can't stop the censor. The censor wants to keep going. Certainly, there is that uh, kind of effort. Certainly, a totalitarian society tries to re restrict um, access to foreign ideas, because foreign ideas dilute the authoritative control of the whole society. There's another way. There are people who don't live under this, this single central authority, and, and those have to be resisted by any authoritarian or totalitarian society.
Joseph, I'm sorry if I seem to cut you off before. It's quite simple. Basically, well, for one thing, in the first place, we should make distinctions uh, in terms of political censorship and censorship in literature. Well, the political censorship is usually uh, established in order to sustain, uh, in order to help the state or sustain the status quo. This is what the state is most interested in, and, well, it uses all the outlets, well, propaganda especially, in order to achieve that goal. Well, the censorship in literature is usually a spin-off of that sentiment, plus com- well, that is combined with uh, some sort of a backlash of conservative aesthetic, which was well, involved or active at the moment of uh, the change of the regime into authoritarian regime. Well, given the fact that the aesthetic concepts don't pop up on the daily basis, it's quite easy to imagine the existence of literary censorship even in the state which hasn't passed into the totalitarian stage. But getting to what I was talking about, about the sex, etc., well, basically, the, the main idea of literature, since we, are, since we are talking presently about literature, well, or I am talking about literature, uh, censorship in literature, basically, uh, literature, as a rule, as a kind of a form of art, as a medium, if you will, well, stresses usually the individual, yeah? whereas the state always stresses the masses. The state tries to uh, ensure the unanimity in action, the tyrant, well, that's his main occupation. Well, uh, that's his main concern. Therefore, anything that professes uh, individualism to any kind of degree is immediately suspect on the uh, sexual activity, eroticism, etc., which are, in essence, an ultimate manifestation of individualism, if you will. And the most pedestrian one, but, well, certainly uh, become the subject of a special concern of the censorship apparatus. According to his thesis, the Soviet government should crack down on Anna Karenina because that is a very individualistic in his terms, in your terms, in your own terms, much more than any pornography could possibly be because that's really a thing between individuals. And in that sense, the first thing to, to censor would be the classics, certainly. Mm-hmm. And on the whole, the discussion has something coming about it because I feel that we have come together mainly because we are baffled by censorship, because we, we are trying, we are fumbling in the dark to a kind of mind, which is the sense of mind. Well, for, uh, let me reply. Because I think, as good and as whimsical this argument is, basically, but all about that, well, in the first place, is the phenomenon of this century. Classical literature is, by definition, is safe and doesn't have that much of a bearing on the perceptions of individuals, etc., etc., yeah? It's a kind of a safe thing, yeah? Censorship basically deals with the literature today. Censorship is not retroactive, you see? That's the point. History, however, is being censored retroactively. Not really. Well, well, all right, Trotsky, but well, you can uh, take uh, our sematoria by Ovid being published in the Soviet Union and and even Mm -hmm. today and not being censored merely because it's classic. But that's true and not true. I mean, there there are several considerations that weigh here. I mean, the regime of the colonels did ban Antigone. Mm -hmm. Because on the one hand, there was all the tourist considerations of the Greek classics, the public performances in the summer. On the other hand, there was the kind of political demonstration that could possibly be organized around performance of Antigone. So the classics are, I think, not safe. They have an advantage. Because they are of tourist value, if the whole if you think of the whole mm-hmm. world as tourist mm-hmm. fodder, mm-hmm. the classics are a kind of tourist product that every 
nations secretes. It's an article of consumption. Therefore, they are always protected to a certain extent. But in a pinch, if the government feels that something could be organized around a classic, as the Greek government did about Antigone, then they will sacrifice the, the tourist article. I mean, and so one could imagine a situation which even Anna Karenina would not be safe, as Dostoevsky was a problem for a while. It's easier now. It might get harder again. And so on. I, I, just, I think you know, you're right in general, but one has to say that they're protected rather than safe, or they have an advantage, a built-in advantage that a contemporary work doesn't have. It's an interesting question to me when you say, well, they could have organized around Antigone. Uh, that's the uh, constantly, when I've been in these countries, it's always fascinating. What are the real dangers of these things to these police regimes? But the, the piece, I think, is, is the, the tremendous importance of what Ariel said, which I found terrifically illuminating, uh, because precisely his argument, which made a whole lot of things make sense for yeah. me that never had before, is that ultimately censorship is not functional in any immediate or practical sense, that it can never be explained if you ask, well, what Why is really the danger right. in this particular exactly. situation? There's a that's, much larger purpose. So that's why well, I think what yeah, he said was, was really very profound, because he shows a reason for censoring beyond any practical reason. Like the whole story that your friend brought up about the copying machine, Joseph. I mean, why, why should copying machines, by definition, always be a problem for these societies, when we know that, in some cases, the machines are going to be used to, be, to copy people's wedding announcements, which obviously are not a problem. But it just the idea that you would have a machine which could distribute something that would just be of interest to some people, some clan or clique or tribe, as opposed to everybody else. That formal principle, in other words, what Ari was saying was, was really that censorship ultimately has a formal principle rather than a pragmatic principle. I think he's even going beyond the notion of communal cohesion, suggesting something. I mean, that whatever proposes something outside of what is defined as the community is dangerous. I mean, I'm so right. excited about what you say because mm -hmm. it makes sense of a lot of experiences I've had that I've, I've never understood. I was in China in the beginning of 1973, and I found out quite by accident that the moonshot, this was January 1973, had not been announced to the Chinese public. The Chinese public in January 1973 did not know that people had gone to the moon, which happened in July 1969. And I asked a lot of people I met, of uh, you know, people who were reading Newsweek you know, and that sort of thing, of course they knew, editor of the main paper in Shanghai, I said, why, why? And Because I wanted just to hear what they would say. And the thing they said over and over again, it's not interesting. It's not interesting. What does that mean it's not interesting? It's not interesting. I never understood that until now. I know why now. I know because it's upsetting. What not interesting translate upsetting. Upsetting because that means there's a world outside. Therefore, any information which suggests there are worlds outside, possibilities outside, it's not simply that it's damaging to the cohesion of the community. I mean, it just changes the whole map. It seems to me asking why these people do it, which I think is a very valid question, and, and absolutely interesting question. I think Ari is yeah. very close to it. It does have tremendous to do with the feelings of, of authority, that, uh, which are often not all that easy for some elites to maintain. I mean, they have to constantly say to themselves and come on to their publics as people in advanced, progressive, and in control of situations to admit that these decadent capitalists and, and uh, corrupt places, had, were achieving technological heights of this enormous quantum jump beyond their own capacity. 
Also, a society that is more more easily manipulated is a society which is more unified. The Mm -hmm. thing that strikes you, let's say, when you went to China, is that all the art could be understood by a six-year-old. But obviously, if what you have is a community of people in which there's no differentiation, in which a work is censored simply because... Censored, that is to say, that its it's distribution is impeded. Simply because... Or not written, exactly, which is where censorship starts. Simply because not everybody can understand it. That that itself is an argument. And it's an argument, by the way, that occurs all the time in this society, too. How many things are reproached for being not accessible to everybody. Why do you want to write this way or this book or do this thing? Not everybody can understand it. When I mean, that's a natural... Acts. When the censor acts, it's usually yeah. by denigrating the, uh, the work of literature. In the name of some art. kind of democratic idea. Very yeah, often. It's a terrible <laughs> piece of right. work. Um, Nadine Gordon's book was banned in South Africa. And the first thing the censor says is, this book is of no interest to anyone. It's a terrible book. When the book was unbanned because of outside pressure, the, the way in which they explained the unbanning of the book was to say, uh, the book is so bad that it isn't going to have any effect on anybody. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. This episode was produced by Micah Hazel. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.